The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Welcome back to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience and technology stories from the world of ore deposits. This series is created in partnership with Sequent and the Society of Economic Geologists, and we have a new episode out every Monday. Your hosts are Ann Thompson from PetroScience Consultants, Hallie Kievel from Cobalt Metals, and myself, Nicole Doucette. I'll be hosting this episode. I'm a science multimedia specialist at Sequent. We're the creators of geoscience analysis, modeling, and collaborative technologies. You may be familiar with a few of them, like Leapfrog Geo and Oasis Montage. And so on last week's episode, my co-host Anne broached the topic mining, community, and how we can do our best in this area. This week, we're continuing that conversation, but from the technology side of things. The question we want to explore is, what are, and most importantly, should be, the relationships between geoscience technology and the communities that we're a part of? First up, a story about providing one of life's most essential resources to communities around the world, water. I'm Paul Bowman. I'm the principal geophysicist and technical director at Whirly Parsons, or, or Whirly as, as we're now called. And I'm the technical director of the geophysics group and, and I'm the founder of the geophysics group, which I started about 30 years ago. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Paul a few times before, and for good reason. He has a whole whack of stories ready to share at any given time. He and his team have actually been featured in a few different documentaries and shows, including one on Netflix called Holocaust Escape Tunnel. And Paul's stories resonate because his work stems from his passion for humanity and his willingness to try and solve big problems with the geoscience technologies we have today. This interest was prominent from his undergrad, where he was split between the humanities and engineering. And I actually started in Near Eastern Studies, and my advisor, Dr. Charles Asawi, uh, uh, very well known at the, at the time in economics of the Middle East, I remember very clearly him advising me that if you really do want to do something significant in, in economic development and in different parts of the world, especially in the Middle East, don't major in Near East Studies major in engineering. And so Paul got a degree in geological engineering, and once he graduated, worked for Schlumberger for five years in Southeast Asia and remote locations in Papua New Guinea and East Kalimantan in Indonesia. Remember, this was in the mid-1980s. This is before cell phones, before internet, even before personal computers. So you're, you're really on your own. And I was working on oil and gas exploration. I was a borehole geophysicist, um, building my own bases, hiring my own crews. I was I was in my early 20s in charge of millions of dollars of equipment, flying it all over the, the jungles of Southeast Asia. So so it was a real opportunity to to learn a lot because you had to do 
do everything. And in the mid-1980s, another big thing happened, which was the oil and gas crash. And so Paul went to grad school and decided to focus on hydrogeology and geophysics. And after that, he moved out to Calgary, where he's still living today, to work in oil and gas. It's hard to remember in retrospect, but it was just coming out in, in late 80s, early 90s. Desktop computers, software applications, the ability to bring computers out into the field new geophysical instrumentation, the ability to process that that data, software. So it was, a, it was a great timing for me to jump into this new field. Paul started at Pedo Engineering, which went through a few different name changes before being acquired by Worley. Now, Paul is a technical director there today, and he's well known for the international community water work his team does. But that wasn't always the case. At the beginning of his time at Worley, Paul was working on water supply projects in Canada. The first large overseas project that 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 gave me, a, I guess I'd say, a break into this world of community development for water resources in under-resourced communities came in Yemen. And that actually came out of some of our oil and gas clients. Specifically, we were doing work for Canadian Occidental here in Alberta, and, and they, of course, had their, their biggest producing field in Yemen at the time. And of course, it's even in more chaos now. But at the time, it was a very centralized government, and all the revenue from the oil and gas development that was largely happening in the south and remote east part of the country with an area that's called the Hadramut province, all that money was going to Sana'a. And the people in the Hadramut weren't getting anything. And, and these people were already, at the time, desperate. I mean, you had communities that, that would maybe get, if they had tapped water, it would come maybe once a week. In some communities, it was literally coming just a, a few days a month. In other communities, they were taking their water from wells, often slightly brackish wells. And I mean, I remember one community we went to, the water was quite literally saline, five or 6,000 parts per million. I remember tasting it and just spinning it on the ground. It was so caustic. So Canadian Occidental funded their exploration and, and development project there. And we actually ended up doing a spectacularly successful geophysical water exploration program and drilling program. And we cited 19 wells, 17 of them were successful, and most of them were spectacularly successful with um, testing for anywhere from a few hundred gallons a minute water to over a thousand gallons a minute per water. And from this project, Paul went on to do six other community water supply development projects in Yemen, which were funded by various oil and gas companies and the United Nations. This gave Paul's team experience in this type of work, and also gave them a reputation. But Paul says there were actually two projects that kickstarted their team to a whole different level. One came in 1999, and that was a project in Malawi. And... At the time, I remember Malawi was the third poorest country in the world. It was just ahead of Mozambique, which was in the midst of a brutal civil war, and ahead of Upper Volta, I, I think it was, in Western Africa. And the German Development Bank, they were working in southeast Malawi in, in Mangochi, and they saw one water project after another fail. And, and in the area they were working in, they saw that the success of water well drilling was one in four. And that was actually one in four with geophysics. Generally, contracts were doing 1D soundings. And they wanted to improve it. And they had seen papers on the 
2D resistivity work that we were doing, which at the time was quite a quite a new technology, and they, and they asked us to come up with an approach that would improve the success rate of water well drilling. So first we designed a program of hand pump repairing where we would pull pumps from a number of several tens of different wells. We would repair the pumps, but while the pumps were out of the holes, we would do a borehole geophysics logging program. So we'd run different sands in those wells, identify what those physical properties were that identified the aquifers. And from those physical properties, we would then design a surface exploration program. And we did that. We logged 20 or so different wells. And then we went on to a program where we carried out uh, surface geophysics for water exploration using EM, using 2D resistivity, using MaxMin. We identified 500 drilling targets in over 250 villages. 220 of those targets were drilled and 207 of those wells were, were successful. In the development world, a successful well is one that will produce at least 20 liters of water in a minute and is within 500 meters of a village with a population of no less than 250 people. So 207 successful wells is no small feat. Paul credits this project with transforming the understanding his team and hopefully others had for how to explore for water in crystalline basement aquifers, which, incidentally, cover about half of Africa and are the main water supply for rural Africa. And so I said to Paul... It's incredible, too, what a difference, like, giving a community water can make, right? All this community water supply work, it, it all falls under the NGO, the World Aid acronym of WASH, Water sanitation and hygiene. Of course, we all think of the water part because without drinking water, you simply die. And and then we might think of the hygiene part a bit, but in fact, nowhere at no time in, in maybe human history than right now has this been so important because here we are in the first time in any of our living memories that the entire world Every country in the world is being threatened by this pandemic. And, and what's the best preventative measure? Soap and water. And, and that seems so easy where, where we are. And, but, you know, most villages in Africa, and you can think of any village where you might have to walk 200 meters, 500 meters, two kilometers to, to get water. And, and washing your hands with with soap and water, every couple hours is, is not so easy. And, and yet it's even more critical in the, these environments where these village environments where people often usually live communally. And, and even though they, they may be in the wide open spaces, they're, they're living in single room huts, um, you know, in very, very cramped quarters. That really made me stop and think. It is so easy for us in water-abundant countries like Canada to follow suggestions to wash our hands constantly, but it's another matter of survival for those who don't have access to water. So Paul shared with me another project his team worked on in 2005, which was after the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami in Sumatra, Indonesia. UNICEF wanted to assess the impact of the tsunami, which is now thought to be the deadliest in human history. And they also wanted to begin the redevelopment of water resources in the province. And so Paul was selected to lead the project because he had the right technical background and because he had previously spent time in Indonesia, he speaks fluent Indonesian and Malay. It speaks to what we're seeing now where the, the, the kind of catastrophe, the kind of 
chronic underdevelopment that you see and threats that you see from global warming, from from drought, from overpopulation, from increasing stress on rural water supply. But then you also see the the catastrophic and instantaneous almost impact that something like a tsunami, an earthquake, or fires can have, and you you have to react quickly and often write your own rule book as you go and think in your feet and work in, in situations where you don't have every, everything you need. You don't have the maps you need. You don't have the equipment you need. You don't have the information. And But people still need water and they still need wells and they still need the, the basic of necessities of life. And they need them immediately, not a month from then, not three months from then. So I learned a, a lot and developed a lot of connections and learned a lot of sort of the philosophies that have guided me over the last 15 years. And so what are these philosophies? I asked Paul what he felt the role of geoscience technology should be in our communities. The overarching role of technology is to improve the quality of people's lives. But more to to the point of that question, I I think the question that's often not asked is, is where the technology should come from. Specifically, should it come from the top down, which is where it, it usually comes from, bottom up. And when, and when I say from the, the bottom up, should the technology be decentralized so everybody can make use of that technology? In the less developed world, I find that a far more effective approach. And to give you know one, one example that probably means nothing to people in North America, but means everything to people in Africa is the M-Pesa system. And the M-Pesa system, it's a banking system that, that was developed in Africa and it allows people to bank from their personal phones. And when I say personal phones, I don't mean their Androids or their iPhones, but their, their $10 Alcatel handset that they can charge once every three weeks from wherever they may be fortunate enough to find somebody that might have a solar panel and and it will hold that charge and allows even a a nomadic uh, camel herder to deposit a a few dollars or withdraw a few dollars or or Kenyan shillings or or whatever from his account. So a very decentralized technology that, that... very well distributed, that actually speaks to the needs of the people. But there's other technologies that that could be applied, are being applied, and hopefully will be applied in in all aspects of various aspects of life and in various uh, development settings that will relate to water supply, medical health, agriculture communication and so forth. And certainly that is the role of technology to not necessarily change people's lives, but help them live the lives they lead, but live them better. So when it comes to geoscience and technology, we need to determine the best way to get these tools into the hands of those who need them the most. And Paul says soon, some of these out of sight, out of mind crises will be on our front doorsteps. For example, climate change, drought, UXO, and saltwater intrusion. They seemed like problems that were other countries' 
problem. So, uh, for instance, drought. It's an existential problem in Africa or, or India or certain places in, in Southeast Asia. But, I mean, now we're finding it's an existential problem in in California and Arizona. And, and sure, we're, we haven't abandoned Los Angeles. We haven't abandoned Tucson. But, in fact, there's many tens of communities in California, in Arizona, or in other places in the United States that have quite literally completely run out of water. People have abandoned their houses or, or the, the only water they have is, is trucked in. Of course, other communities, larger communities, for instance, the Santa Cruz, Monterey, the places in the Central Valley, they've been able to essentially buy their way out of some of these problems through desalination or or moving water into basin transfer from from rivers, for instance, the the Colorado River. But these are only solutions for for a limited time with long-term drought, with long-term water stress, with increasing impact of saltwater intrusion. These alternative sources are going to become either increasingly expensive or just increasingly unavailable. And so we're, we're, we're all going to have to to face and address and, and rectify a lot of these same problems that up until now we've, we've just been saying here in the West, we've been saying those are the problems of, of those other countries, of those refugees, of those displaced people that are living in less politically viable locations in the world. It's a lot to think about. Thank you, Paul, for sharing your expertise and message with us. Again, that was Paul Bowman from Morley. There's another part of geoscience and technology that maybe you don't think about too much, but I think it's super important, of course, somewhat biasedly as someone who works in podcasting and writing. It's science communication, how we choose to share science with others. So my name is Alan Shapiro. I'm a water and science communication professional. Currently, I teach at BCIT in their sustainable business program. And at SFU, I teach a science communication course there. And can you tell us a little bit about your background? My background is actually not science communication at all. My background is very geoscience. I did hydrogeology as an undergrad and as a master's research. And so started out doing groundwater contamination work, pretty bread and butter, and then zoomed out over time, ended up a little bit more in environmental assessment space, then water policy space, and now looking a little bit more broadly at water sustainability. But over the course of that, I was really interested in the communication aspect of the work. So we know a lot of really cool things as geoscientists. How do we get that out into public hands? How do we translate that into policy? How do we use that to improve business decisions? And that didn't seem to be something that was really core to the work I was doing. So I ended up going out just out of my own curiosity and building up a toolkit of science communication skills. And then that turned into doing training around science communication and then into teaching science communication, which has been a lot of fun coupled with the geoscience background. Yeah, no kidding. And is there a specific reason or a specific need that you saw for communication that led you down that path? Geoscience, I think, is so applied and is so concrete and is also just so core to a lot of the issues we're facing right now. So anything from climate change to water contamination. These are really policy decisions. These are decisions where the public is really 
impacted by all the knowledge we have or the work we're doing. And communication is often the bottleneck between taking the knowledge that we have and converting that into some sort of impactful form. So that's what really pulled me into it. Yeah, I guess it's kind of that data and information is only useful when it's put into a usable format for people to either make decisions or execute on the right path. So there's kind of that missing gap between the scientists and the people who have to make those decisions sometimes, right? Exactly. And we often forget that the work we do as scientists or as researchers or as technical professionals fits into some bigger context. And we sort of don't really look at what's happening to it once it leaves our desk. But in reality, that communication or that ownership over the knowledge we have is so important. And so let's bring it down to the basics. How would you define science communication? So in the science communication class I teach, we talk about... (laughs) Science communication having three elements that distinguishes it from other forms of communication. It has to be sharing research-based knowledge. It has to be sharing to a specific audience. And it has to have a specific impact in mind. So unique to science communication, I think, we've got this sort of peer-reviewed, factual, research-based content. But similarly to other effective communication mechanisms, it needs to be targeted at a specific audience. It's not just communicating into the void, and it needs to have a specific purpose. So whether that's we want to improve policy, we want to educate, we want to engage, we want to change behavior, but that communication act itself needs to have some sort of measurable purpose by which we can go and make it better the next time around. And I think that makes it really clear to perhaps to some people who might be listening who are like, I'm a scientist and I communicate. So therefore that's science communication, right? But it is sort of taking those very deliberate steps to outline your audience and who you're speaking to and the actions that you actually want them to take to have that effective communication between two parties. Exactly. Yeah. So then communication isn't just any act of sharing knowledge. It really is an intentional design exercise around How do I best share this knowledge in this context with this intention? And what technologies are available for science communication right now? So I just released a blog post in March on Medium, looking back at the past decade of science communication in Canada. And it's crazy to think about the fact that 10 years ago, we talked about science and we wrote about science and that was it. Whereas nowadays, you've got anything from digital tools, right, the ability to reach audiences in new ways through social media. You've got graphics, so we can visualize data now in so many different ways. We can visualize concepts through things like infographics and make them really nice and concrete. Then we've got video tools to make things dynamic in a way that weren't accessible to communicators just 10 years ago, right? It took a lot of expertise. It took a lot of resources. Nowadays, Someone with a software can very easily learn to make videos. And then finally, the sort of cool new frontier of communication is the virtual reality, augmented reality of really being able to immerse people inside concepts in a way that they wouldn't be able to before. And that's really starting to be used in earth science communication, which is super cool. For someone who's listening to this, who's like, okay, science communication, our company or myself could be doing a better job, or I have really interesting research that I would like to share with the public or other people in the geosciences. What best practices would you uh, tell them or share with them for them to get started? So I've got five best practices. First one being to apply the science of communication to the communication of science. 
I think this is something that we take for granted a little bit, that communication is this soft skill that we develop with experience, whereas science can be done in a right way and a wrong way. But in reality, there's this really deep body of literature looking at how we communicate particular topics in particular contexts. And so it's important to recognize that how we talk about climate change, for example, which is a really polarized topic, is really, really different than the best practices we're talking about, you know, rocks in a classroom setting, right? So really looking at the literature around the specific thing you want to communicate in whatever setting. There's the information deficit model is number two. This is the traditional notion of an expert educating people around a particular topic, which is, I think, how we're trained to communicate, doesn't really work. So that still seems to be the core of most communication processes, but has really, really poor outcomes. So looking at how we make communication much more focused around audience is a great way to improve communication outcomes. Number three is designing for audience. So thinking about what does that audience need to make a better decision? So not just how do I communicate the thing I did to an audience which resembles me, but putting yourself in the shoes of the audience and saying, what do they know? What do they need to know? What are their knowledge gaps? And then how can I design communication to give them the tools they need? Uh, Number four is feedback and evaluation. Every communication process needs some mechanism to get better over time. And we do this again with hard science. We collect data. We make better decisions based on that data. And there's a lot of mechanisms like surveys or even informally just talking to people about how did this go? What did you take away from this that helps us refine communication? And then the last one is understanding our own strengths and limitations. So I think this is a blessing and a curse I've seen some companies not want to try communication in any creative way because it's not something they can do well in-house. And then I've seen companies that do the reverse and they get out on social media. And at a time like this with coronavirus going on, they'll be sharing information which is not necessarily sensitive or contextually appropriate. And having that awareness of what tools do we have in-house, who can communicate well in-house, and then what collaborations can we build outside if We really, really need a video made, but we don't have the ability to do that with our own skill sets. In terms of companies, organizations, individuals that you think are doing a great job as communicators who people could maybe find online to get an example of what to do, who would you highlight? I'd highlight two from two different perspectives. So on the tech side, BGC Engineering is doing some really, really cool work with using AR and VR tools to communicate geoscience data. So they've taken Microsoft's HoloLens platform, which is a virtual reality headset, and they've built their own software package along with it. So you can walk into a meeting where you're sitting around a boardroom table and you've got a map, and then everyone puts the headset on and all of a sudden you're looking at a 3D topography or you can even walk through the mine site. So that is a really cool application of AR, VR to really making data more intuitive. So that's coming, I think, a lot more for other geoscience companies, and I'm really excited to see that. And then on the other side, in terms of supporting public engagement, WWF Canada, the World Wildlife Fund and their Canadian chapter, is doing really cool work with visualizing watershed data. 
And this has been a big problem in my field. So looking at groundwater, surface water for years, we've got a ton of data, but we don't really have engaging platforms where users can go and actually understand overall, what is a watershed? How is that watershed doing? Is it healthy? What are the threats? So WWF Canada has some really cool public facing reports and you can go in and you can mess around with their open data platform and really get a sense of what a watershed is without ever having to sit through a class on, you know, here's a traditional definition. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, what do you think are our responsibilities as geoscience professionals when it comes to the communities that we work in and that we affect? I think we've all been taught to do good work. I remember all my training through APEG in Alberta and now through EGBC that as geoscience professionals, we have a responsibility to do ethical work that's in the best interest of society. But I think hand in hand with that, it's to make sure that our work doesn't stop with us, but we're really supporting our knowledge in translating into impact. And so that means if communication is a bottleneck, we become communicators or we support communicators. Or if policy is a bottleneck, we don't just stop with the report that we write. We try to own our data and our knowledge in making policy better. So I think increasingly it's not just to do our own work well, it's to enable better outcomes and to support better impacts around our work. How do you think we can use communication to create a better or maybe perhaps a more sustainable society? To me, it's really exciting that the concept of expertise is breaking down because I think everyone as far back as, I don't know, as people have been wandering around outdoors has had some connection with the environment, but we haven't had the data or the knowledge to support it. And experts have really been the bottleneck around what are we looking at? What does this mean? What are the impacts of human behavior? And so I'm really excited for communication as a toolkit to really start empowering and engaging people to make better decisions about their environment, whether it's to support policymakers in making better policy or business leaders in making better business decisions or the public in just living better lives in connection with the environment. I think all of a sudden that information barrier is starting to break down and we've got all sorts of really, really cool ways for people to really feel connected to data and to knowledge and to information in ways that they haven't before. Once again, that was Alan Shapiro. So if you're feeling really jazzed after hearing this interview and you want to hone your science communication skills, there's a lot of organizations around that can help you. For example, there's the Pine of Science Festival that's in 29 countries now, and there's lots of science communication workshops popping up globally. You can check out hashtag SciComm on your favorite social media channels to see what's happening in your area in this space. And if you're based in Canada, you're in luck. You can check out Science Slam Canada, which Alan is a co-founder of. Competitors have five minutes to share a science topic with their audience. And actually, Science Slam is going virtual, so you can stay up to date by following the Science Slam Canada Facebook page. Last but not least, we have a story about how we source and distribute ideas for new technology and how this links back to our communities, both geoscience and beyond. I imagine most of you listening will remember either the GoldCorp or Integra Gold Open Innovation Challenges. In both cases, they effectively crowdsourced their search for gold by making a huge amount of historical data available to the public and offering big cash prizes for the best gold prospects submitted to them. It paid off. 
In 2000, Goldcorp held this competition and received over 1,000 submissions, and more than 110 sites were identified, 50% of which were previously unknown to the company. And of these new targets, over 80% had significant gold reserves, exceeding $6 billion in value. And Goldcorp has stated they believe it cut up to two or three years off expiration time for them. And they received all of that in exchange for half a million dollars given to the winning team. So this concept of open innovation, it clearly works in some circumstances. Maybe right now you're thinking of a challenge you face that you'd love to have help solving. Well, we've got Holly Bridgewater, an exploration geologist and industry lead for Unearth Solutions On, to share more about open innovation and how you can best leverage it. There's lots of different definitions of open innovation. I would say from, from my standpoint, it really is about engaging people from around the world in solving problems. So how do you put your problems out there and get them solved by a kind of a collaboration and a group of people instead of just solving them internally in your own organization? Holly was an exploration geologist for 10 years before she joined Unearthed Solutions, which is fostering the largest community of startups, developers, and data scientists, making the energy and resources industry more efficient and sustainable. The pivot that happened to me when I moved to Unearthed was that I really saw so much opportunity, particularly in the exploration space, for us to just fundamentally do it so much better from a technology angle. Is there a particular reason, though, that open innovation hasn't been taken up widely by the resource community? I think that the the main barrier is concepts around IP, data security, what competitive advantage is, and that, you know, I I find particularly in, in our industry, we talk a lot about needing to collaborate to drive innovation forward Uh, and in reality we have this opportunity with open innovation which is demonstrably a very very effective way of driving innovation forward across industry but people have a barrier towards it because they feel like if they do something in an open format they'll provide value to other people which will then potentially break down their competitive advantage so it's challenging a lot of the ways that we think about those things as a business sense But there's lots of really great examples around the world of people using open innovation very successfully in other industries. So, you know, NASA's a classic. They've been doing it for decades and really demonstrate many, many successful projects that have used open innovation. You know, likewise, we've seen Boeing, Lockheed Martin, people in the defense industry. And and definitely we're seeing our industry pick it up now, but it's just taken some time and we're kind of still experiencing the discussions around those barriers. And so keeping that future in mind and the bigger challenges, the bigger global challenges we're going to be facing, do you think that open innovation is a sustainable model for that in the future in terms of facing those challenges? I think it's one one of those sustainable models. I think there's lots of different pieces of the puzzle. You know, your co-host on here and as well as a lot of people you've had on the podcast before talking about kind of machine learning and data in the industry will, particularly in exploration, really help us move discovery forward. I think open innovation though, can always play a part in solving some of the bigger problems by tapping into different ways of thinking. Diversity of thought is is kind of one of the underlying, I guess, premises around open innovation and that you're essentially solving a problem many, many times with different people around the world instead of just once. And by getting that diversity of thought, you can get so many different approaches and different ways to solve a problem uh, and I think kind of back to kind of this, I think it's that Einstein quote of, you know, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. But I do think that, that one of the major things about open innovation is it really does 
drive change and innovation across the industry faster i think particularly in, in areas of around direct detection of ore bodies i think that's something that we still really have uh, a need for some pretty big innovations around geophysics obviously is is it's really effective in in helping us do part of that yeah do you have case studies that you would use as an illustrative example for some of the best practices for putting something like this in place? As we are fairly early, like a lot of them are, are certainly learning experiences which help us get towards best practices as well, because a lot of the things we're doing, particularly in our industry, are fairly new. And I think the Integra Gold Challenge, and, and before that was the Gold Corp Challenge, are really good examples of kind of building on that learning. Since then, we've partnered with Oz Minerals to run a very similar challenge called the Explorer Challenge, which was run last year. Oz Minerals very much were looking for that. How do we leverage some of these modern kind of data science machine learning techniques and, and see what people are doing in the space to look at data in a different way? And it's a really good opportunity now that we have the compute power, now that we have easy access to data and connectivity to start applying those techniques to geoscience data. And a follow-up from that is the current challenge we're running, which is Explore SA with the South Australian government. It's really interesting because all of the targets that are generated through that uh, competition that open challenge will be available to the public so it's a very kind of it's as open as you can get with open innovation if you like and I think that's why you see a lot of the public sector going down this path is that they're able to provide huge value back to the community the exploration community through these processes by enabling all of the results to be public so some of the other interesting examples that we've seen there's kind of a cross-section of problems that you solve, but they all kind of have interesting outcomes that is not just directly solving the problem itself. So an example was Newcrest. Quite a few years ago now, we ran a challenge around, you know, using machine learning to process core photos. And this is pretty standard in industry now, but back then it wasn't necessarily just something that people were doing across the board. And so they were able to you know, source an algorithm that worked really well for their, to process their core photos and extract kind of data uh, quantitatively from there. But what was really interesting as an outcome from that and is that we saw some of the software providers actually take part in that challenge and then bring the solutions into their software. So by raising awareness of that, just that small issue that people wanted to use actually said to the rest of the industry, hey, this is an important thing for geoscientists to have and, and cause them software providers to bring that into their solutions as well. Yeah. So those are kind of the examples where you're kind of seeing those broader benefits. That's really interesting. And it's funny you even brought that up as an example because I just um, spoke to Federico from Imago, which is, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard of them. I think they're mm -hmm. yep. also based out of Australia. Yeah, so yeah, it's core imagery processing, basically unstructured data processing. As a side note, stay tuned for that interview with Federico from Imago on episode 13. But yeah, that's really interesting. So I mean, like, okay, let, if someone's listening to this podcast right now and they're like, okay, I have a problem, I want to have it solved through open innovation, what kind of steps should they be taking to start that process for themselves, whether it's like either working independently or if let's say they're working for a corporation? Yeah, I mean, I think the first, the first thing to consider is what is the outcome that you're looking for and, and what is it that you're really trying to do with open innovation framing the problem is really important so that you really understand what you're asking the open innovation community to do. So that's really, really the first step is if you can frame it as a problem and, and what you're looking to kind of, what does success look like? So typically 
what I mean by that is, is not saying I would like to find a drone to do a particular thing, but more I have this problem around, you know, detecting all bodies or something like that, and I'm looking for um, solutions that can do address this in a particular way. Then it's really thinking about how you get that challenge out into the public space and, and get people to take part. I think, you know, the classic, if you build it, they will come, just does not really necessarily apply <laughs> to open innovation in the resource sector. You really need to think about how you're going to get that problem in front of people and what the value is for them. So we see sometimes there's prize money associated with open innovation challenges. Sometimes there's an opportunity to work with the company. Sometimes it's grant money to continue developing that technology but you really have to think about what value you're delivering because this really is about solving a problem that you might have but you have to incentivize people to to do that and care about it and as well as the other things like how are you going to assess all the ideas that come in do you have the capability and capacity to develop them and bring them into your business and how might you do that so once those are kind of all the details that you'd also need to consider but there's plenty of I suppose open innovation platforms out there that have that have come up to kind of address some of those issues and helping people get their challenges out there more easily yeah that's really great and I really like when you're talking about the part as well about delivering value what I I'm really liking about the open innovation way of looking at technology is it it kind of turns on its head the traditional relationship that resource companies have with communities, right? So can you talk a little bit more about how open innovation relates to communities and stakeholders? It's a big topic and we can think of community on many different levels, I think, in the open innovation sense. In mining resources, we often think when we say community, we kind of directly think about the local communities in which we work. And I think you know, open innovation can support that in a number of different ways, whether that be by, you know, giving people an opportunity to actually look at and be part of solving the problems that you have, or even be part of the open innovation process. So you might actually invite people in your local community to help uh, assess some of the ideas that come back through an open innovation process. So you can actually invite them to be to be part of building the solutions that will influence their community as well. And then you have broader issues where you might be collecting, let's say, like weather data or something and doing some you know, weather predictions for your purposes of your operation, which by sharing that with the community can also provide them, them benefits. So there's that kind of openness around data itself as well, which can really benefit the local community And then there's the open innovation community, which you work with and how you share value uh, with them. And and I do think, as you said, it kind of does challenge that traditional transactional relationship and how much value sits on on both sides. And it does really, I think, make us think about that. How do we distribute value across our supply chain to make it more sustainable and think about different ways that we can support people? So oftentimes, if you're thinking about an open innovation challenge that you might attract startups to, for example, they don't necessarily just want to get paid a prize of $10,000 or something like that, but an opportunity to work with you through a trial to prove their technology and kind of get a first customer is really what would really help them. So it's thinking about what what support and what value can you deliver, which might not be just monetary. So I think that in terms of open innovation communities, that's really important and we can kind of continue to support and grow those open innovation communities by you know providing them ongoing kind of access to industry 
And then I suppose on the next level up, you've got that kind of how does this benefit the global community? Open innovation can benefit the broader community in this way by helping us solve some of those those key challenges that we're facing as, as a global community. Open innovation, because it is open, it benefits everybody and it helps us accelerate as a whole. I, I had a discussion with this around open source software development where it was to, it basically what you're speaking to now, the idea of re- reproducibility, right? So if someone does a paper on some sort of physics method and they provide, you know, whatever they've created as an, a piece of open source software, well, then everyone else in the open source software community can integrate that into whatever workflows they have without having to do that legwork themselves, right? And it actually means that you can advance much more quickly in science because you don't have to solve the problem every time. You can continue to build on other people's results. This discussion is actually in episode five, if you haven't heard it yet. There is quite a, a tension between, you know, being open and then, and then you know, competitive commercial advantage. And you have lots of people in the machine learning space now developing at the same time their own kind of machine learning pipelines for exploration data and developing kind of the same technologies and processes. But they use that as a competitive advantage to generate business. And ultimately, that process is also pushing the industry forward because you have people realizing this is a problem that's worth solving. So there is quite a good, it's an interesting topic to say, to have a discussion around like where, what pieces should be open and what pieces should still be kind of retained for people's IP and competitive advantage. Yeah, it is a really interesting concept that you've brought up because you're right. I do see the need for both. And yeah, I was going to ask if you had, if you had solved that question yet, but. (laughs) Well, I think it's a very interesting question. It's a really hard one. I guess when I look at the data prep piece, as an exploration geologist, you come into a company and you assess historical data and you know that someone else has done the exact same work that you're doing now like 10 times before for each other company that's looked at that ground. So things like that, it's just not efficient for anyone. If it's something that everybody is doing exactly the same but independently, it should be open. If you have a a competitive advantage because your technology is fundamentally different and you're doing the process fundamentally better then that should definitely be something that you hold on to and is your IP. Yeah, 100%. And then the last question I have for you then, and you did touch on this on one of your previous answers, what do you think is the role of geoscience technology in community? For me, I know this is kind of a super big scale. I think for for geologists, like we really are on the front line of raw material extraction and, and geologists do need to take responsibility or, or, ha- or have that that kind of commitment to our communities to say you know like we are working towards making sure that we are extracting materials in a really responsible way and trying to minimize our impact as much as possible and I, and I, I just believe that most of that is through developing new technologies um, that can do things for us much more efficiently and I think we as an industry are we're definitely moving towards that but even as individuals I would challenge like geologists to think about the companies that you're working with and making sure you're aligned with and you're happy with the strategy that they're taking and that you feel like that they're moving in the direction that you want them to move in to help to kind of move us all towards that goal. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing right now is that, you know, in terms of making change and making movement and and disrupting culture and all of that, it does really come down to the individual level to make that change, right? Like um, we're all people who can work towards that and who can push corporations to do the right thing. But yeah, it's crazy. Like to me, you know, just hearing you say, 
the geologists and the geoscientists are on the front lines for some of the stuff that's coming down in the pipeline. I actually had a very horrifying realization, you know, it's never really been so apparent or sort of tactile where right now we have the COVID-19 pandemic. We have the doctors, the nurses, the researchers in health sciences on the front lines. They are the people we're relying on right now to come up with a vaccine. And in the same way that when some of these things start happening, like we have saltwater intrusion, we're running out of drinking water, the Antarctic ice sheets are melting and the sea levels are rising or we're running out of resources, that's actually going to fall directly onto our community, right? The geoscience community to come up with solutions to that. So although some of these problems seem fairly, I guess, maybe not our problems right now, they're going to be at some point. But I think we have to think about it like that. Like, I, I know it sounds a bit dramatic, but, you know, in reality, you can't really wait for someone else to come and solve those problems. And particularly, there's a lot of pressure already on us to move towards zero waste mining, to have much um, lower footprints, to think about, you know, how we use energy. You know, it's something like 3% of global electricity is used on crushing rock. It's huge. So there's so much that of things that we're already aware of that we can do and problems that we need to solve. And, and we really, I think back to your point of you know, we do need to take on that as individuals and think you know yes this is something that the industry is doing but what's my role as an individual and how do I keep pushing for these things and how do I and, and we can do that a lot with choosing who we work with and who we work for and you know making sure that we put pressure on and we're seeing that already in that employers now are having you know a lot more transparency over their kind of carbon reporting as well as their environmental policies because prospective employees are asking for that stuff and people will you know continue to do that as a geologist like you can play a significant role in bringing us into a much more sustainable future and that's that should be something that's super exciting for people to be involved in and I think that's what we really get excited about in the open innovation space too is that we get to share that message far and wide and and go and speak to people who've never heard of mining before and say, look, this is a really exciting and important problem to solve that you can be a part of. Once again, that was Holly Bridgewater from Unearthed Solutions. And if you'd like to learn more about innovation and mineral exploration specifically, I'd recommend a read of the PDAC 2020 Innovation and Mineral Exploration Report written by my co-host Ann Thompson. Thanks again to Holly, Paul and Alan for sharing your expertise with us. I really enjoyed working on this episode. And please join us for next week's episode on structure with Hallie Keevil. She interviews three different people about three different deposit types and their structural controls going from more magmatic to more hydrothermal in the crust. Be sure to follow Sequent and the SCG on social media to find out when the next episode is out. And we have new episodes out every Monday. Of course, feel free to share any comments or insights you may have with us using the hashtag discovery to recovery. This podcast was produced by Nicole Doucette and Sequent, with post-production done by Avo Media at avomedia.ca. Editing support from Ann Thompson, Hallie Keevil, Ashley Lockyer, and Megan Booker. Our music is Confluence by Eastwinds. Thanks for listening.